From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. The transition from like 2010 to 2014 uh, or 2016 when I left was really that like dawning of 3D printing was like a term. Um, and we would have like generals come in and be like, oh, have you guys heard about this thing called 3D printing? And we'd look around the room and be like, yeah, yeah, we've been doing it a while. That was Lester Hitch. Lester has been in the additive manufacturing space for nearly 20 years, much of that time spent working for the U.S. Army. He joined the show today to t- share his experience working hands-on with the technology and developing new products, materials, and approaches to improve the technology. Lester is currently an application consultant at Dimension, where he supports customers working to improve the surface finish and appearance of their 3D printed parts. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. And we can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Lester, appreciate you joining the podcast today. Uh, I think we're, uh, we got a lot to, to talk about given your 20-year career in this space. So I'd like to start these with, with some context of kind of the person, uh, who's the person uh, that I'm talking to. So um, where'd you grow up? Kind of what was your kind of early days like in terms of kind of getting on the path towards manufacturing and, and building stuff with your hands? Yeah, no, uh, and thanks as well for, you know, taking this time to share with me. I'm happy to be here to, to participate in this podcast with you. Um, yeah, so like I, I'm a Maryland guy, what, what I would say, like, uh, you know, we're one of the more prideful states when it comes to our fra- our flag. I think we're only rivaled by a few other uh, states within the country, um, but we put it on everything um, from apparel and whatnot. But, uh, but yeah, I've lived in Maryland my whole life. I love the Mid-Atlantic. I love the four seasons uh, that we get here. They're, I always tell people they're they're never as long as you want them to be. Um, and when you're tired of them, they're ready to transition to the next one. So, um, but yeah, I, I grew up in this area. Um, I'm the son of a uh, of a National Guard guardsman. And my mother worked in the government uh, career uh, sector as well. Um and once we kind of settled where I call home, it's a little town called Havity Grace, butchering of the French language um, at the very top of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, I lived in that area, grew up there. I was a kid who grew up with a, a long leash. I would ride my bike, you know, many miles to the neighboring town, to the army base and enjoy the swimming pool, um, you know, in the summertime while my parents both worked. Um, but kind of growing up in that environment and, and my father were big influences on me uh, kind of always being into like mechanical things. Um, so like with that bike, I was always fixing it. I was kind of traveled around with like a little set of Allen keys to, to fix different things. If I was out on the road and things broke, um, you know, working uh, with my father alongside him uh, on, you know, car maintenance and, and things like that. So I've always had this like interest of working with my hands and, and tinkering with things. And um you know, so I was kind of going through high school, uh, I started to kind of think about like what it was that I wanted to do. And I kind of leaned towards engineering. Uh, but frankly, uh, by the time I had that realization, um, it was a little, I'd say, too late. And I was very much like a coaster through school, if I'm being honest. Uh, 
I was very happy with, you know, the C's get degrees kind of motto. Um, and so I, I went through community college uh, to kind of get my bearings on what college, you know, education would be like. And that's kind of like where I would say my luck turned around. Uh, so, and it's also one of those experiences where it's always made me an advocate to other people uh, who might have kids or younger people that I might meet kind of with the same question mark of what path to take. I'm like, college is definitely a pathway, but if you're not sure about it, maybe you don't jump into like a big expensive four-year school. I think a lot of people kind of today, particularly for my generation, have this mindset. So maybe try a community college. It's a, definitely a good place to like affordably figure that system out if it's a direction you want to take. And what's um, the, like for people who may not have a lot of direct experience with community college or looking at those options okay. now, like what, what would you say the, the biggest difference is between a community college and kind of your, your standard college university setting? Yeah. Well, so first things cost. Um, I think for sure, like growing in an area that has like a pretty rich community college environment, you know, here in Maryland, there's, there's very many of them that are also linked directly with the different four-year universities uh, around here. Um, so uh, largely it's cost. So you, you figure your first year, especially in, in a college program at a four-year university, you're going through what basically everyone considers core curriculum. So it's like, why spend all that money on, on a state school or a big university when you can get the same kind of education realistically for the same topics um, at a much lower cost. And then so like affordability was a big thing. Like my parents, we didn't come for money or anything like that. So I actually worked uh, a second job. I worked at a, a kayak shop off the water and uh, that, you know, that was my source of income for getting through school uh, by and large part. Um, so that was a big factor. And then after that, it gives you like a little bit of like the, I guess the safety net of, you know, still living at home. Um, the campus was real small. So you would typically park in like a commons area and then you'd have like, you know, you'd walk around campus between your schools. Um, some people I think liken it akin to like a, a an extra level of high school. Uh, that's just more of a, a free floating program for students to navigate before being thrusted into like this immersive college experience. Sure. And, and so you you're kind of start your path on community college, kind of what, what happens next? Yeah. So I was taking general studies because again, I didn't really know what I want to do, but I took a concentration in um, 2d and 3d CAD uh, computer aided drafting and design. Um, so in that, like it was definitely an area that, that I knew I really liked and after like the first semester, which was like for me, a, a spring semester of my first year, um, uh, an internship opportunity came available with a local government agency uh, on at the Army Base Aberdeen Proving Grounds. And they were looking for uh, people to support them in their 2D and 3D modeling space. And they actually interviewed me and another uh, student. They hired us both. And when I showed up for that first day, they said, well, you actually don't have a lot of CAD experience. And the other guy does because he actually went through a, a vocational tech school through high school uh, on that same focus. So he was well more experienced. But they were like, we have this thing called 3D printing and we really could use some extra help in the lab. Uh, so I was like quickly thrusted in into this, you know, state of the art facility. Uh, they had a, 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 a new DTM uh, machine, you know, the predecessor to 3D 
systems. Uh, they had a big FDM quantum uh, machine, and then they had a SLA uh, 3500 uh, printer, and they needed someone to clean parts. So I started working in there, kind of doing dual duty with that and the CAD stuff. And after about a summer of working there, um, it was a great job. I told them, I was like, hey, can I keep working here? Because it's pretty typical of the summer students to go back to their universities. And they're like, well, yeah, but you'd have to be here during the day to like make it worth you know, our while. I was like, that's cool. I haven't registered for classes yet. So I like, immediately made all my classes night classes uh, as much as possible. And um, and so from there, you know, I was 19 at this rate. Uh, I actually started that job on my on my birthday. <laughs> uh, so it's like tends to be a, a memory. Um, but uh, yeah, so like at that rate, I was like thrusted into 3D printing and I just got hooked. Like even though I was just cleaning parts, I was able to kind of see what was going on. And by the end of that summer, I was setting up builds. So I started like get more of an understanding of what was going into it. And then plus like having the CAD knowledge. I saw the pathway of like taking something from a digital space and seeing it come to life, you know, out of the printers. And what was the context for having all that equipment there? Was it you know purely prototyping? Was that kind of an R and D center? What what were you guys? What was the yeah, mission so, for that? Yeah. yeah, so that was a pretty unique facility. Um, forgive me because I'm not fresh on like what their current name is because the government, uh, military agencies change their names all the time. Uh, changed frequently while I was there. But yeah, the, the main group uh, worked on what was called at the time the Edgewood Chemical Biological Center uh, on Aberdeen Proving Grounds here in Maryland. And uh, their core mission was, you know, prototype product development support for any kind of like devices, testing apparatus, you know, what have you, whether it was something for a lab, uh, purely conceptual, um, you know, proof of concept, or if it was something that was, you know, going to be thrown into an experimental system um, or possibly even in the hands of a soldier or a scientist in the field. Um, they were this group that like focused on that chem bio uh, detection and protection type of uh, engineering and science. Um, but the unique thing about them was they also, as I was there for about 14 years throughout my career, through all that time, um, they've always supported uh, local industries through cooperative research and development agreements. And so we supported, you know, your Joe Schmo who came off the street. I always make the joke, you know, if you had a, a salad chopper that you wanted to make for QVC, they would help you, you know, no matter how much engineering support you needed, little or a lot, they'd help you with all that stuff. And then we would help you, you know, print it through the lab and bring it to life. Um, and then beyond that, they also were like a service bureau for other DOD agencies um, you know, military and government uh, that needed work as well. Cause you know, it, so they were able to justify kind of having all that technology in there because, you know, they had a whole subtractive, you know, I think at the time it was 30,000 square feet of uh, subtractive, you know, uh, traditional manufacturing technologies, including injection molding, sheet metal welding, all that fabrication type of effort. Uh, so 3d printing was just like another piece of that puzzle for them. Did you gravitate towards any one part of the process? Like, did you like the post-processing part? Did you like setting up builds and design, running the printer? Um, well, so this was back in early 2000s. So I would say at the time, post-processing probably wasn't my favorite part of the, the equation at the time. Um, 
I think as like an operator back then where the software was like a little bit more uh, basic, you know, we didn't have like materialized uh, like everyone so commonly does nowadays. Um, so there, there became this like pride with like how well you would set up a build, especially if it was on something I would say risky or if you were aggressive on, you know, part placement and, uh, you know, how much support you had on like an SLA build and, you know, did it build or not basically like, you know, if the machine, if you walked in the next day with a crash, was it because you got too aggressive with the supports or did something just kind of freak happen in the machine? So that like whole setting things up and seeing the end result, definitely I felt like kind of hooked you in. And uh, yeah, it was always just enjoyable to develop that knowledge of like what would work and what wouldn't uh, to get to make a build successful. So you started with there, you're like 19, 20 kind of working there, yeah. transitioned to full-time. Like, did you stay there full-time kind of just kind of climbing the ranks? Yeah. So, so I, I came on as what they call student contractor. Um, and then I got like uh, hired on as a temporary contractor, like a traditional contractor um, through like a third party company. And then uh, I ultimately got hired on as a full-time, um, you know, GS uh, government, you know, uh, employee, and that took about, uh, I think that was about a four year, yeah, about a four year transition from, from when I first started. Nice. And what's yep. it, I mean, um, what was your like day-to-day kind of life there? What, what were you kind of working on in, in the lab and, and around the yeah. shop? Um, so yeah, day-to-day, you know, you know, each day, particularly, you know, start with a Monday, you'd come in and, you know, you would observe, you know, your builds that ran over the weekend. Um, and, you know, based on like the timing of everything, you check out your builds, uh, start processing what was, you know, successful or, or not clean up the messes if there was any kind of left behind. Um, and then you pretty much like would clean slate everything, uh, whether it was going to be for builds coming in like later that day, or just knowing that there was more work coming down like throughout the rest of the week. Um, so you basically, you'd hand those parts off to the engineer or the scientist or other customer that you're working with and um, probably have some dialogue, I guess, on like, you know, how things came out, what would like the next steps be if required um, and, and, and kind of go from there. And that, that would kind of like repeat, you know, throughout the week. Um, and, you know, it, it might sound re- repetitious, but that's the great thing about 3D printing, printing is we, we're often doing like the same work over and over again. So it always kind of kept it fresh. Yeah. And so how long did you spend at, at that position? Yeah. So I was there overall for 14 years, you know, starting from, um, you know, moving powder and, and resin and picking up filaments and, and all that such um, to about the time I left, uh, you know, we moved facilities. And so I was like a big part of like planning the layout of the new facility and pretty much handling the day-to-day production workflow of the facility. And, and by that point, you know, we went from three main technologies to about a dozen or so, you know, industrial printers and maybe another, I think at that time we had like maybe another 10 or so consumer grade printers, because this was about the transition from like 2010 to 2014 uh, or 2016 when I left was really that like dawning of 3D printing was like a term 
Um, and we would have like generals come in and be like, oh, have you guys heard about this thing called 3D printing? And we'd look around the room and be like, yeah, yeah, we've been doing it a while. Um, so it became like this thing where we had to like really get into like the desktop printers just to kind of like validate them and experiment with them. And it sometimes just, you know, accept a free gift when it was given to us by someone else's funding. Um, but yeah, I was there for about 14 years and yeah, it was, it was a great place. It was a little bittersweet when I left, but I knew I kind of hit like a point in my career with the government, um, where I knew I was looking for more and like a different challenge. Um, so that's when I kind of started to look elsewhere, um, for, for different opportunities. And along that time, I mean, you, I imagine you saw a lot of different projects kind of coming through. Were you always, I mean, you were pretty early on with like the DTM and, and, and the early adopter status. Were you always getting kind of the newest, like latest and greatest, like top secret kind of serial number one printer? <laughs> um, so I think that nothing that crazy. Um, but yeah, we were doing our best to stay on top of it. Um, Cause as much as like, we had like, I would say an advanced interest uh, at the end of the day, we're the government. So we couldn't always necessarily move fast enough to bring in like something at the alpha or even like the early beta level of like a product. Um, and not to mention like the government, at least at that time, they weren't big about accepting stuff for free. There always had to be some kind of like ownership about it. Um, and if not, that wasn't something that they necessarily wanted to give back. Um, so uh, yeah, there was a few machines that we got, like we were an early beta tester for, uh, the object Connex 500 when it first came to the United States. Um, and then within that, we often not did more beta testing on materials. So that was like more of our interest. I would say is like, let's get a developed technology in here, uh, because a lot of what we were producing wasn't so much R and D as it was like, um, like design evaluation and, you know, uh, end use application type kind of development. So was 3D printing going to be the end use product or could we use 3D printing to bring a product to, to, to market faster, uh, essentially? Um, so materials were like a big part of that. Uh, and even like, you know, with softwares and, and stuff like that, we were always trying to stay on top of things. Uh, but that the object context was one that stood out as we were definitely early adopters of that one. Uh, which was cool. You know, it was all these, you know, materials mixing together and it was different than SLA, but similar. Um, so yeah, that was a cool one to get, get hands on early. Gave your lab a nice, nice smell when you walked in in the morning. <laughs> smell and unfortunately a puddle. <laughs> yeah. yeah there's, uh, there's waste bins or something. Yeah. They was, they would always have a little bit of a leak under there. Um, but yeah, so that was a fun one. And then, um, yeah, just working on, you know, I remember like the first time I worked with like a carbon fiber filled uh, nylon material for a powder bed. And like you weren't really given like much direction, you know, from the supplier on how to how to make it work um, and, and stuff like that. And I remember, you know, I think it was wintertime because I remember putting a jacket on after uh, after working with it all day. And, you know, it felt like I was uh playing around in fiberglass insulation all day because, you know, there was, you know, what's PPE back in the early two thousands. Um, so yeah, it was just like learning those lessons about handling certain materials differently than others, uh, were, were big takeaways on some of those experiences. 
And were you involved in like, like how did you build your kind of network of, of other users? Were you involved in like AMUG at, at this time too? Kind of, did you have kind of a resource of people that you were like, Hey, like you got this machine. Like, have you seen this, this problem? Yeah. So, um, I think it was uh, 2003 was my first opportunity to go to AMUG. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, I was still a student contractor at the time. Uh, so it's not like I could travel on my own. And the week, uh, the week of prior to leaving for AMUG, uh, my supervisor uh, uh, got appendicitis. So it was like crushed dreams immediately because I heard about this thing. And, and at that point, 2003, it wasn't even AMUG. It was... Um, I think it was still just the SLS users group. They were still separate between SLS and SLA. And um, so it was 2004, which I think was the first 3D SUG, 3D systems users group um, that I got to go to. And yeah, that was like my first time to meet like the bigger industry, uh, which is kind of funny to say bigger at that point, because I think attendance at, at that stage was like a few hundred people uh, compared to what it is now. Uh, but it was my first time to be there and, you know, beyond meeting service technicians and a few salesmen, I got to meet other users, have that engagement that AMUG is just so awesome for uh, with other users and just technically talk about things and, and, you know, learn that I wasn't the only one having like a certain struggle. Uh, and in some cases, learning that like I might have had added value to someone else's uh, kind of situation. Um, so yeah, I, I started going to AMUGs and Rapids and then even like uh, as like STEM and 3D printing got more involved, uh, we worked very closely with like the local STEM area. And then as, as Maryland as a government got involved a little bit more, um, you know, working with different programs through the state, whether it was, again, school stuff or um, educating, you know, just different delegates um, and, you know, uh, manufacturing boards involved with the state on what 3D printing was. All those types of engagements definitely helped me build uh, the network that I have today. So kind of back to your career story. So you have all this experience, you spent kind of over a decade um, kind of working on the various processes, SLS, SLA, material jetting. Like what did you, what in your mind did you want to do? Like, cause you had all this experience, like what were you doing product development as well? So like, you, it seems like you had like a lot of different directions you could, could look at both within additive and outside of additive. Like, did you have an idea of like, I know I don't like what I'm doing now, or I don't see kind of the pathway forward. Like, but did you have an idea yeah. of like what you want to do next? Yeah, exactly. So I had a loose idea and I just, I really just knew that like I wanted to see what was out there beyond like the government because I had some opportunities to just transition over to like another government agency, but it would have been like true R&D. And frankly, like at that time, I had zero interest in, in doing R&D. Like those same groups always kind of came through our labs and wanted to do R&D with us. And we were very much like production mindset and just to kind of like put the brakes on and do focused R&D just like just wasn't in my nature at that time. Um, so I was thinking like, if I want to like diversify my career a little bit more, like what's one thing I'm maybe lacking through either education or, uh, formal career experience. And that was like something in the sales or like application, like engineering consulting type of space. Uh, so I kind of just started like to 
browse my network a little bit and see like what, you know, see what were my strongest connections to get me in that direction. And it so happened to work out that uh, I had some really good connections with the guys of uh, Integra Service, uh, which is now part of uh, EOS. Um, at, at the time, uh, they were independent and getting merged into uh, EOS. And, and I also had a good connection with the, the material developers at uh, Advanced Laser Materials, which is also now a part of EOS. So... I started engaging with them. It felt like, you know, two years, like I, all before they kind of um, started working for EOS. I felt like it, it took me about two years to get like the feelers out there and to truthfully get myself like mentally prepared to leave like the safety net that is the, the government. Um, and it was, uh, it was 2016 when like everything aligned and uh, the mergers of ALM and Integra and EOS had really started to stabilize, even though it was still early days uh, back then. And yeah, there was, uh, they were growing. so they needed people with uh, experience uh, to kind of help them out with like their, what they called aftermarket uh, sales support at the time, but it ultimately evolved into the lifecycle solutions team, uh, which focused primarily on like the material conversation uh, engagement between customers and sales and the applications team. Okay. And so that's, is that as people are starting their, like, Hey, we just bought a uh, P300 and we need to understand these materials better. And, or we're looking at trying elastomers or something else. Yeah, like, what, uh, what sort of issues were people coming to you guys with? Yeah. So like with powder bed, I mean, let's be honest, like 90, percent plus of the market is PA 12. So it's like, it's real easy for everyone to just kind of check that box and, and run with it. Uh, but it was always great when we met with certain customers in different spaces that wanted something more technical beyond just like your standard PA 12. Um, so it was, it was a matter of like understanding what was available within the EOS and ALM material portfolio and also like engaging with everybody involved, you know, the customer engineering process development out of Germany. Um, you know, hey, we've got this, you know, 40% glass filled, you know, material that has a, a pinch of carbon fiber and like a pinch of, you know, flavor retardancy. Uh, can we run this in their P3 system? Um, and often the answer was, well, we haven't done it yet, but, you know, we're willing to try. Um, and uh, so, I would kind of like help manage that expectation of this is a possibility. Um, but, you know, here's kind of like what the timeline is going to ultimately look like uh, to kind of bring this on board, you know, through the platform, knowing that it is like a developing process. Um, but often it was that kind of engagement where the customer knew they needed more out of like the standard material offering or the, the standard process. And so it was the idea that you, you had kind of your own, printer's toy set at EOS, at ALM, and customers <laughs> kind of come, come to you, or are you kind of going to their site and say, hey, we want to run this material? Yeah, so, so I, honestly, I wish it was probably more of that situation, but at the time, um, I was still living in Maryland, so I, I've been doing remote work before, you know, before COVID and remote work became a thing. Uh, so ideally, I think at that time as I kind of matured in that position, and it was actually a, a transition I tried to uh, make happen, I probably should have been more closely linked to the material at the machine and like the process development and, and some of like the recipe, uh, you know, development with the different scientists and engineers between all of that. 
Um, but it wasn't. So really what I was, what I became was just this person who um, coordinated, you know, the, the multiple effort of all these different teams, you know, basically a project manager uh, of all these different uh, entities wanting to come together towards the same goal. And then uh, really helping like to manage the customer expectation, like around those timelines and around those, you know, possible results, uh, which frankly, like, even though I didn't really realize it was a lot of what I was doing for the 14 years that I was working for the army um, uh, and supporting all the different groups out there was, was really that, that project management, that customer engagement, even though I felt like I never had any formal experience with it. And I didn't, I discounted what I had in terms of knowledge and capability um, just because I didn't really know any better. Once I got out in the private industry, I realized I had built up all these skills and I was comfortable talking technically to people and also managing like projects of this kind of like complication. And so, uh, so you're at kind of EOS, ALM, kind of how does the, what's the next transition in, in your career? Yeah. So I was there for about four years and, you know, so this was approaching 2020 so through 2019, I started, you know, engaging internally uh, with the teams there to see uh, actually if I could make that move to Texas and work more closely. And it, it got to, I'd say, a situation where there was nothing that ended on bad terms or anything, but um, it was at a point when EOS was maybe looking at kind of like a concentration of, of growth. Uh, they weren't really expanding so much anymore. Uh, so there was an opportunity to move to Texas, but it wasn't like a guarantee of being able to do what I wanted to do. They still needed someone like in my position and in the team that I was within, I had the most experience in that role. So uh, it was one of those situations of like, yeah, you can move to Texas, you can kind of take on more work, um, but you know, there's no guarantees that we could give you a promotion or, or, or anything towards that end uh, in, in the short-term future. So at that time, um, I had a close friend uh, who was uh, in the midst of his own startup business. Uh, so um, I started communicating with him more about what he had going on. And this company turned out to be uh, Additive Accelerator uh, with Alan Guyon. Uh, so I figured, why not take the leap and see if it's like something I could do? Uh, so he hired me on as his uh, business development uh uh, VP of business development uh, for his company there, where it mostly focused on that more consultative aspect of engaging with, you know, either new, new customers that had like big ideas, um, or it was like material developing customers who were looking like for support on, you know, how can they take this material and like wrap an application around it. Um, so that was kind of the focus there. Um, but unfortunately, after you know so many months, it kind of felt like the same kind of work that I was doing with EOS. So I decided ultimately wasn't like the right alignment for me. So and 2020, COVID was going on. Um, so I, I feel like everyone kind of took like this internal look on you know what they were doing and and where they were doing it and like what kind of work life balance they were looking to achieve. Um, so I decided uh, I wanted to maybe find something else. But again, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, so I rested on my laurels a little bit and I was able to take another role with the DOD this time as a government contractor, um, actually working in that same R&D lab that I could have used, you know, pathway I could have gone in, in so many years. 
And that was kind of scratching that itch of, you know, where I thought I was going with EOS. You know, all right, let me get closer to material development, uh, process development, and the machine again, get my hands dirty. Um, so I did that, and that was going pretty well. I was working on metals where prior most of my experience was polymers. We just started to do metals um, when I was with the Army the first time, and it just, you know, wasn't going great, I would say. Uh, you know, we, we were definitely like plastics people, um, so metals was a challenge. But here I was, smarter, wiser on newer, more stable technology so many years later, and um, yeah, it was fun. Like I was working on RCAM e-beam systems and a really big, you know, DED system that you could stand up and walk around in, um, playing around with like some, you know, different materials that, you know, weren't turnkey solutions for either system. Um, and then I got an interest, well, then I had an interesting phone call with another friend within the network um, of the industry. And I was actually, so I was dabbling a little bit with doing my own like consulting work on the side at this rate. And I had a customer who wanted to talk about like post-processing capabilities in terms of smoothing and coloring. So I called up my buddy, Mike Shore, uh, who was working for Dimension at the time. He was formerly with Under Armour. And um, I called him up and I was like, hey, you got a minute to talk about some work stuff. And he was like, yeah, like, are you looking for work? I was like, no, I actually have like, you know, something to talk to you about kind of for my needs. But since you mentioned it, maybe we can come back to that topic. Um, so basically 2020 um, into 2021 um, was, you know, my, my, my play around year as far as my career went, maybe even like a little bit of a pause. Um, but I think what happened was is it, it showed me that there was still a direction I was looking for that I just wasn't quite finding uh, in other places. Um, and, you know, knowing Mike and knowing what Dimension had to offer uh, on like the post-processing side and, and working to bring customers like this, this professional industrialized finished product uh, kind of was like very appealing to me. Uh, so I decided to give that a shot back in August of last year. And, you know, here I still am. I'm actually very happy and the work's, you know, extremely engaging. The type of conversations we have with people. I, I really enjoy, and that was actually a part of EOS that I really enjoyed as well. It's, you know, talking to people and helping them get to a point where their product from 3D printing is, is fully enabled. It, it looks like a professional product or an industrialized, you know, component. And it's just, it, it's really fun to be like involved in those topics and, the, and that level of engagement and discussion uh, towards that goal. Awesome. And so can you like, maybe give a, a couple minute overview of Dimension, kind of what's the technology. We talked a little bit about the need in terms of yep. what it does, but um, you want to just, for those who may not know much about the company, you want to just give kind of a quick overview? Yeah, so Dimension has been around since about 2015. Um, the founders uh, kind of created the technology to develop color for you know, a powder bed printed uh, cell phone case. Um, and it was one of those situations where they realized like the traditional methods of dyeing parts, you know, pot dyeing as it's known, wasn't very effective. It was extremely inconsistent and it wasn't like robust enough to be considered like a professional result. Uh, so they developed a coloring solution known as the DM60 
Uh, and it's still like one of the main systems that we sell today. And stemming from that, it was like, well, with the existing post-processing technologies, namely cleaning, um, there's, there's a lot of like uh, inconsistencies found in that process too, with like your standard generic, you know, blasting cabinets. So they developed an idea around like, how can they make um, put the cleaning of powder bed parts uh, more automated and, and more consistent, you know, from cycle to cycle. And so they created the, the power shot uh, system. And from there, um, they just kind of kept going down the line of like, all right, well, we've got cleaning, we've got dyeing. Um, you know, the, the cleaning technology quickly uh, highlighted a, an ability to apply surface treatments to, you know, powder bed parts as well. So they came out with the PowerShot S, which just uses a different media and blasting strategy to get like this uh, more homogenized, you know, semi-gloss surface finish on the part. Uh, and then they got into vapor smoothing uh, just as well to deliver like sealed uh, water resistant uh, surfaces that mimic that more of like an injection molded part. Um, so that's what they offer. They offer the, what we call a printed product workflow where um, you're allowed to do cleaning, surfacing and coloring um, to deliver this, you know, finalized industrialized component that would be hard to distinguish between something that was injection molded versus something that was 3D printed because we all get excited about that 3D printed part when it comes out of the machine, but we all know it needs like a little bit more when it goes kind of beyond the lab doors or the production floor. It needs to look like something more professional and the traditional ways of post-processing, um, particularly for certain processes and materials, are just cumbersome and they're not scalable. So that was what they, they really focused on is how can they industrialize and, and automate a lot of the post-processing technology. And, and so on that front, I've always been curious to be interested to hear your thoughts on this is for so long additive was kind of the prototyping technology, right? And like the big purchase is the printer itself. Right, and you got some software, you have some ancillary equipment, a blasting cabinet, things like that. Um, how do you approach you kind of your customer years now with okay, like you need to buy the machine from somebody else, whether it's EOS or HP or Stratasys now or whoever it may be, and then you yeah. need also need all this extra equipment too. They may not know that like day one when they go into. So, some of the machine vendors. So where, where in the conversation, like are, are people getting smarter about that? Like understanding like, Hey, like uh, I need some of this extra stuff or like six months in, they're like, Oh crap. Like the parts they showed me at the trade show, like yeah. gotta do these two or three extra steps to do it. And like, where do where like, where are people netting out now in terms of, of kind of the finding out the equipment that they actually need to, to get that final injection molded kind of feel. Yeah. So I, I would say it's a mix of like uh a mix of some different adopters out there, you know, based on, on their readiness level. So you have like your big OEM, say like automotive companies, mm -hmm. they know what like production needs to be. And so in terms of like equipment being this multiple multiplying factor, um, they're okay with that. They just want to make sure that the equipment that they're putting in that line is going to be able to meet their needs, which are largely drawn around like, you know, production cycle efficiencies and you know, bottom line uh, in terms of dollar value. Uh, and then you've got customers who you know get a 3D printer 
And then they kind of don't realize they need like all this other equipment. Um, even when they like, you know, purchase an SLS or an SLA system um, and they realize like, oh, I've got to have a cleaning station. I've got to have a bead blast cabinet. I've got to store all these chemicals. I've got to store all this powder. Like those are light bulbs for some people that don't become real until that stuff starts getting installed on their floor and they start making it. And they're like, well, what am I going to do with all this powder that I'm creating? <laughs> like, what do you mean there's a refresh rates and recycle ratios and, and stuff like that? Um, so, yeah, I think there's just, there's a mix between all of that of different like knowledge and, and readiness level. So when it comes to like the customers that we engage with kind of to that respect, um, it actually helps that some of them have gone through those like headaches of what the traditional post-processing is. Cause when you tell them, Hey, if you've got a hundred plus parts that you're running through your, you're trying to run through your machine, your, your, your blasting cabinet, you know, multiple times a day, that's hours of work for multiple people. Um, and we've got a machine that can do it in 10 minutes and, you know, each cycle for a hundred parts, like that, quickly becomes like a realization to them that this is a solution to a problem that I've, I, I didn't know there was a solution for. Um, so that tends to help in a lot of cases. And for people with like pot dyeing, by example, you, you can, I think pot dyeing works great when it's small and you're doing it here and there, but when you're trying to like make it this big industrialized system, you know, there's service providers out there that have spent lots of money um, trying to make sophisticated pot dyeing systems. And they have some success to it, but if you talk to them truthfully, they, they'll all admit there's a lot of pain that comes with those systems. And here we are with a little system, um, you know, that's got a nice market value to it. It's, it's, it's not too expensive, but it's priced just right. And it's got automated cleaning cycles and, uh, you know, they don't have to worry about, you know, the system boiling over and, and stirring, you know, dye and getting some kind of inconsistent shade of black navy purple or blue like um you know they're going to get a consistent you know you know black or colored part every time that they run it uh so those light bulbs you know start to connect with people and they realize like we've created something here that is ready for like production and, and bringing it in-house and, and at the end of the day like kind of like to your your question that you maybe posed a little bit there in the beginning compared to like the total formula of things you know machine and material and all this, you know, footprint adoption for all this equipment. At the end of the day, ours is actually like probably one of the lowest, you know, cost factors uh, total to, to the end of the cost per part ratio. We tend to be less than like 14, 20% of the, the cost penalty, if you will, um, of like added value to the part. Whereas the machine and the material still make up, you know, um, 75, you know, 60% of that part's cost. And so today, like, what does your, what's a typical day look like for you? Yeah. So, um, largely a remote employee, uh, our office here in North America is in Austin, Texas. Uh, so whether it's customer visits or, you know, team building type things, or just, you know, general need to take care of stuff in the office. Um, I'm working from home or traveling to customer sites for, for training. So what we call an application consultant, uh, it's my job to engage, you know, technically uh, between our customers, our R&D teams, our, our product innovation teams, our sales teams, um, to make sure everyone's on kind of at the same page of what this customer wants 
and and also taking that customer's feedback and and relaying it to those teams and, and maybe um, you know having a part in updating improving a process that we have today or giving us some insight on the direction that our technology needs to go into the future. Uh, so a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls, uh, you know, trips right before rapid. Um, I was, I hit up three different States between a customer visit in Austin. We did, uh, we met with some resellers and customers in Montana and Minnesota. Uh, and then I was home for two days and flew right into rapid, you know, for Detroit, uh, or to, flew into Detroit for the rapid show where you're, you're talking to people every day, you know, of different uh, awareness levels of the technology and, you know, and it's, it's good stuff. So it's a lot of talking, which is something that I'm, I find that I actually enjoy doing more so today. And then every once in a while, like when I do get to visit the facilities, I am more hands-on uh, with the equipment and helping like our on-demand service teams, you know, work through different, you know, workflows and stuff like that. And so reflecting on kind of 19, 20 years in the industry now, kind of what still excites you? What gets you out of bed every day? What sorts of things do you like to, to continue to, to be excited about the industry or kind of your own career? Path? Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, it's, it's probably like a, a generic answer, but it's honestly the industry um, and like the direction that I, I do feel like it is going, you know, being in, being in it for these 20 years and, and getting privilege of going to different shows like a mug uh for one uh you know i remember back in the day there was this fear of like a you know a traditional 2d printing company you know realistically they could have come into the market and bought everybody and you know condensed the industry under one player so to speak um spun off whatever they wanted to do and they would have had the power and money to do that and there was a, i felt like there was a true fear to that and then 3d printing blew up and it was just like you'd have these conversations with people and they'd be like, Oh, have you heard about 3d printing? And, and I explained to them what, what we called rapid prototyping, what that was. And then added manufacturing became a term. And uh, so, yeah, I just like, I think the way that the, the industry has been evolving, um, you know, the growth of metals, um, even though I'm still a plastic guy, there, there's a lot of cool things happening with metals um, and I'm excited to uh, honestly, to be on the side of it that I'm on now with the polymer industry to, to see the polymers, you know, because of the enablement of post-processing technologies to see like more excitement happening on, you know, polymer parts becoming in use products at scale and at volume. So yeah, that's definitely what I would say. It ex excites me nowadays. Awesome. Well, good stuff more to come. And, uh, Really appreciate you joining the episode today and uh, sharing your career story. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure.